0: For okay. 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 So we've been discussing someone who does not serve Hashem, even though their behavior is flawless. Everyone has a copy of the text? How could it be that your behavior is flawless and yet you are not serving God? Anyone any call? What's the basic idea? Because you're not doing anything. It's just in your... Yeah, it's not doing anything. It's just in your nature. And there's actually two natures here. There's the nature of the animal soul, which does not obstruct a religious lifestyle. And there's the nature of the godly soul which orients a person towards Jewish practice. And so those two natures are not of your own doing. Um, And as I said also, it's not just that they're not of your own doing, but in a a deeper sense, if you have a natural inclination um, to connect to God, are you really aware of God as someone else, someone you are serving, or is God merely the object which your instinct is oriented around? Think again about the difference between the children think of their parents and adults, hopefully, think about their parents. Children think of their parents as features of their own reality, right? This is why it's weird to think of your parents having lives when you're a child outside of, you know, parenting you. Um, I've noticed something with my children. Okay. That... They feel as they get older, it's less so. I think that's partially said degree of suppression or partially degree of maturity. But they feel like there's something fundamentally unfair about parents taking time for themselves. The oldest is 13, and my youngest is two. So cute. And I have seven of them. So, So life in our house is boisterous. um you do the 13 year old house? (laughs) Like taking <laughs> My 13-year-old is very helpful. He is also a, 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 a scholar. That's so um, he makes very good use of his time, and he learns a tremendous amount. And, um, so yeah. Uh, no, he's incredibly helpful. But he's also incredibly busy. His idea of a good day off is to go to study that oh, Tz. That's his thing. Yes. Um yeah. By the way, as a completely parenthetical note, nothing related to class, but we're on the topic. You should just realize that you do not get to decide who your children are. Be aware of that. I have seven children. They're all very dissimilar from each other. Um, you just kind of have to roll with whoever they are. and like, I mean, you still have to like educate them, but as King Solomon, the wise of all men said, educate the youth according to his way. You have to kind of figure out who your kids are and work with that. Just because, you know, so. Um, Anyway, that being that. Yeah, so there's this sense that if it's, and that's because it comes back to a natural thing. If 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 you have a natural affinity or attachment to someone, you don't really relate to them as a someone. It becomes more of a something in your life. And so the notion that I am serving God, or I am someone actively doing something for God doesn't really make any sense if it's just the innate nature of the godly soul manifesting itself because it's not obstructed by the animal soul. Um, Now, do you recall we said there were three natural dispositions that if they all come together will help ensure that a person is a pious, devout Jew despite not serving God. What were those three dispositions? They're very studious by nature. They're not interested in mundane pleasures. They're they're, they're frigid, they're cold, and then the third one is that they are they are yeah, yeah. They they lack enjoyment in, in 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 mundane pleasures. Okay. Now, all three of those things that they come together, right? That person is 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 not is, is a bit of a zombie, not entirely, but a bit of a nebuch. Yeah. And um, the godly soul, of course, has a natural affinity to seek out godliness and to avoid things which are. Um, ungodly and so such a person will of course naturally just spend their time serving God or just sorry, doing torments as one should but they're lacking in the service of God. Are there questions about the description of this person before we go forward and complicate the issue? Yeah, like that that, um, well it does mean a personality. There are many many aspects of a human being. For instance, um, what is your opinion? About what? I was gonna see something okay. a little bit more specific, but you have the general theme. I was gonna ask you, um, w- what is what is your opinion about Web three and blockchain and its ability to decentralize and the ability to decentralize the internet? you, I'm asking you seriously. What's your opinion? What is that? Exactly. Okay. Well, that's not fair. I should ask you about things you have an opinion. things you know about. Um, what did you study in school? Um, I did history. History. What what area of history? Um, British medieval history. British medieval history, okay. Um, what do you think about Queen um, Elizabeth being a clone? No, no. What do you what do what do what do you think? What what are your what are your opinions about the founding of the English church? I think Henry VIII was a bit stubborn <laughs> and he personally did it his own way. Okay, now I'm going to ask really you a necessary. follow-up question. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. One. When you answered my question, were you digging deep into yourself and bringing out an important part of yourself when you answered that question? No, I just answered. You just answered, right? Now, are there people who their relationship with understanding whatever subjects they study, such as in your case history, right? Or I use an economics example, right? that there's a very strong investment of themselves. They strongly identify with their intellectual opinions about things. Yeah. you met people like that? Yes, yeah, so okay. much Now, that's a clear personality difference, right? In other words, some people relate to ideas as things to be understood and recalled when needed, and that's it. And their opinions are simply, what do I understand at this given point? And other people see intellectual life as like the real avenue to find, um, to express what it means to be human. And so like identification with the pains, and I'm like, right. Okay. One time early in my marriage, I was sitting on the couch and my wife asks me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm thinking. And my wife says, well, can you do something else while you're thinking? And I said, no, <laughs> thinking <laughs> is a very demanding task. <laughs> um, these are personality differences, right? So, so do you see what I'm saying? Like, like, like to, to reduce all personality to, to just specifically the things here, I think is it, it's, it's not really fair. Now it is true that somebody that has this kind of, um, more, um, studious hyper-focused getting to the depth of something personality, they're naturally cold. They're naturally not responsive to central experience in the world. Right. on, on, it very often can go with a person being kind of dead inside. It doesn't have to be, right? In other words, have that person find something, you know, in, in a deeper realm such as philosophy. By the way, there's a reason I didn't ask you about philosophy. People tend to be more opinionated in a deeper way about philosophy, so I don't want to risk not making my point. That's why I asked you about history. Because um, awesome about <laughs> um, But you... Y- you know, the, the, and yet the, the, there's people that are not like that, right? And, and, and then we can get into the, the specifics of people's opinions. Some people are extremely judgmental. They see the problems and everything. They're very pessimistic. Some people are more optimistic. There, there's many other personality differences that differentiate people one from the other. It gives a sense of their own, um, I don't know, uniqueness is the right word, but their own flavor of that person, um, which would still allow this. Thing, right? These people are not like actual robots and zombies, but relative to a large aspect of a large part of, of, of what most human beings live through and go through and deal with, it's pretty dead. Okay? But we don't want to reduce it to like they're like a total zombie or total. Okay. Um, good? Yeah. Okay. One time my brother and I were driving in the car. To be fair, he was driving. Or maybe my father was driving. I, don't know, I wasn't driving because I don't know how to drive. Um, really. not drive? Like there are things that you have to prioritize in life, you
1: know. I mean, you live in, so, yeah. in Minnesota. Have
0: you Minnesota also got a measure. No, made I made all... All... I made all yeah, many, many years ago. But when you're after, you're after like... I was married. Oh. Um, but anyway, no. So mm-hmm. we were we were driving in Minnesota, Minnesota's a lot of snow. And so my brother and I started discussing about how to drive safely in the snow. And he was discussing about it from a perspective of someone who actually drives a car. Mm-hmm. Chains, tires, how you turn the steering wheel, and I was speaking about things like conservation of momentum and friction. <laughs> <laughs> and then my father, so my father was driving, he started laughing because we both understood each other, but we were like talking on different languages. <laughs> so people have these differences. I mean, differences very you know, is very important. Like like, just because you focus on one thing, actually take this a little bit further. We speak about Sadikim not having an evil inclination. Sadikim also vary in personalities. Like just because you don't have an evil inclination, doesn't mean everybody's the same. Like, um, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, had an older brother who did not become Rebbe. And someone's asked him, what? Okay. Well, he didn't want to become Rebbe. To be fair, the Rebbe Rashab also didn't want to become Rebbe. But everyone kind of figured he should be the Rebbe. Um, he didn't really want to be the Rebbe. His brother didn't want to be the Rebbe. So someone's asked him, how come your brother ended up becoming the Rebbe? And he did it? he says, well, I hate falsehood. And my brother, he loves truth. And rebbe needs to be somebody that loves truth, not someone that hates falsehood. Now, I mean, you think about it, hating falsehood, love, and loving truth are more or less the same idea, right? But if you hate falsehood, what are you going to find everywhere to some degree? Something to hate. And so you will always see the negative in everything. And can you really be a leader of people from that point of place? But if you love falsehood, obviously implies hatred as so a love, truth, but even though that implies a hatred of falsehood, but if that's your primary thing, does everything have some aspect of truth in it? So you just have to find it or bring it out, right? Can you be a leader of people from that place? Yeah. So even that distinction, right? Nobody here is like into being false or into being corrupt. And yet there's still a clear personality difference. One is more negatively focused. One is more positively focused. Okay. Back to the actual text. So too. So we are on the next page. We finally turned the page. It took us a while. And we are at the left column the beginning of the paragraph at the bottom of the page. So too is one who, although by nature is not an assiduous student, has yet accustomed himself to study with great diligence so that the habit has become second nature with him. For him too suffices the innate love unless he wishes to study more than his want. Okay. So we've now extended this idea that even somebody who's not by nature a certain way, if they have developed that as a habit, then effectively that no it was no longer the service of God. So what I would like to do is I wanna spend some time talking about habits and nature, just make sure we understand how we're using these ideas. Um, and then I wanna talk about what that means in terms of Jewish practice and habits, and good habits in Jewish practice. Okay, um, so, In Hebrew um, just like in English we have this notion of second nature we've heard of second nature yeah. so in Hebrew um, and I, by the way I think is actually taken from, from Greek philosophy actually this terminology um, Jews are cannibals by the way are we? yes we are awesome. not like, like like biological cannibals intellectual cannibals If we ever find an idea that we can make use of in explaining our tradition what do we do? We take it. We we take it out of its original context and reformulate it to use it to explain to explain our traditions. But the Christians no, they do something else. So um, this is you know that is, you know that like whenever Jews encounter another culture, what have the what have the Jewish sages done? Taken what parts of that culture can we use to further perpetuate and explain our traditional beliefs? It's the reverse of assimilation. Instead of you assimilating into them, you assimilate from them into. Right? And then what you end up with is little fragments. Okay? So you have all sorts of things, all sorts of like terms. like Even though we're Jewish months, by the way, or actually names of our months. You know where we got those from? The Babylonians. Yeah. Yeah. So, Which is a, like a discussion another, for another time. So this term, second nature, um, it actually means something very, very specific. There's a first nature and there is a second nature. Um what is a first nature and what is a second nature? So we first have to understand what we mean by a nature. A nature in this context is something which it's a behavior or a tendency towards behavior, um, that doesn't have to be engaged willfully. So i am explain to you what I mean. If um, you bang your shin and you scream out in pain, we don't think, oh, you decided, right, voluntarily <laughs> to scream out so that everybody knows you're in pain, right? That's not what happened, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I'm talking about? So, mm-hmm. it's first like your innate reaction that you think about. It. No, this that is going to be nature strong. across the board, all natures. Nature, in other words, nature is going to set up in contrast as opposed to willful and intentional action. Okay, so just one second. So just giving so that would be an example of something which you would say is natural in this context of how, using the word. Now let's use, Now let's take some example. When you, um, when you, um, decide on which spouse you marry, okay, which at some point you're going to probably do that, right? You're going to decide you're going to marry this person, not that person. Yes, okay, that will not be natural. What do I mean? That's not natural. You're going to have to of con- Like, there's a sense of me. There's a sense of what am I trying to accomplish? How am I going to do it? What's important? Right? Those are two very different sides of you know an, an, a continuum, right? Natural, volitional. Good. Makes sense. Yes. But could you say that? Some like some people, uh, when it comes to like matters of like marriage or relationship, they don't act rational. It. Like it's irrational if you if you're, if you're but sometimes people like follow their feelings so it's, like, more like they following their natural, like, inclination towards that purpose. So so I, I didn't say rational, I said I said volitional. Now whether you whether you're rational or you're emotional is a separate question. So if you are pursuing your heart and you don't care about the consequences, you're still acting volitionally. You're saying like this is how I feel, I choose to pursue my feelings and hell with the consequences. Volitional means it's something that you have to You have to actually do mentally yourself, right? Think again, when you stub your toe or something, you scream out in pain, it just happens, okay? It's not, I'm not going to f- focus on a question with how much sense it makes, how much reason you're using. That's actually, it's related, but but it's like once, in other words, like if you use a historical example, there was a movement called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was all about the people. Is that when the people came before? That. Did relate to that, yeah. The Enlightenment was all about this idea that that people should choose how they live their life, and they should make their choices based on their reason. There was a backlash movement. This called the Romantics, and there, and they said, we agree people should choose how they live their lives, but they should make those choices based on their passions. Okay, but but either those of those are going to be called are going to be in the na- spectrum of the natural. Okay, when you're hungry, right? and you unthinkably reach for food, that's called natural, okay? If you are exercising and, you re- and you're forcing yourself to drink water because you realize you're dehydrated, that would be called volitional. See the difference? Okay, so I don't care about how much, whether it's rational or emotional is like not pertinent for our particular discussion here. Okay, someone else raised their hand and I asked them to wait and they waited very patiently. You got it, okay, good? Okay. Now, what I want to do is I want to formalize this a little bit. Okay? So I just gave a description. Nature um, is reactionary, fundamentally. In other words, what I mean is like this. Nature is that given the way you are, and then given the circumstances, this is how you will act. I don't want to say anything it's like absolutely deterministic, uh, but, but I just... The, the, but that the idea is that you are reacting to stimulus circumstance. That's what's happening. Um, and so there's a way in which, if you actually pay attention to nature, you almost have the sense of observing yourself. So have you ever, for instance, lost your temper or um, or or? Um, eating something without it's like you're not gonna eat it and then you find yourself eating it or whatever it is like you you end up engaging in activities and you're kind of aware that you've ever done it or even aware that you're doing it but it's almost like it's happening on its own it's like and and, and the idea here is that this is this is basically an idea of 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 an animal that there isn't a sense of i am now pursuing this thing that is important to me but rather just like if you put wax near fire, it melts, and if you put clay near fire, it gets hard. You put certain people in certain circumstances, they get obstinate. Certain people, uh, and certain people in those same circumstances, they get they get nervous, and you get other people in those circumstances, and they, um, th- th- they become uh, people pleasing, right? There's these kinds of different natures. Okay, so when we mean natures, we mean that something is is the tendency of how you behave in response and reaction to circumstance. Okay? Think little children. Good? Okay, now, so what is the difference between a first nature and a second nature? First, like, could you say that first nature, um, like a second nature is when you learn something to the point that it becomes, like, it's maybe a bit, a bit less innate. Like it started off not being innate, and then it becomes. That's the first or the second nature. The second. That's the, right. So the second nature just, is where you have that same response, but it's conditioned. And the idea is that people, and actually to some degree animals, have the ability to be molded. So, for instance, the fact that um, the fact that um, somebody, um, I'll give you an example. You somebody goes to work every day, yeah? They come home from work and they stop off at work and buy a beer. They go to the bar, and hang out, and then go home. It's a common thing that people do, yes? Now, initially, no one is born with a nature to go to the bar after work, right? People can be born with a, with a nature to be more analytical about things, um, to be more, to, to, to right? To, like, for instance, I have little kids, right? So you can see this even like little, little, little kids, right? Some kids... When the situation is tense, they just withdraw. Some kids, when the situation is tense, they start like acting out. Different natures. You can see that already. You know, even before they're two. But going to the bar. No one's born with the nature to go to the bar, right? Yet, if a person goes to the same bar regularly for a sufficient period of time, and the right right things are in place, what happens is that it becomes a habit. And how do you really, and for our purposes, how do you can really tell that it's a real habit and not just a routine? Like, how do you differentiate the two? What happens if that person makes a conscious decision? to let go of it. That person makes a conscious decision to drive past the bar one day, and all of a sudden he feels how much he has to actually exert conscious control over himself not to do it. Why? All right. So, so what a habit has done is through conditioning has created that same kind of response to circumstances. why changing habits is very difficult. Okay, because because you've created a, a a situation where it's not just you do this over and over and over again. It's that in this circumstances, this is how you react, and we can we can stop reactions. Like, let's say, for instance, some uh, some people when like um, somebody speaks to them very harshly, they get all nervous and they. They, they freeze up inside? Yeah? You know this? Okay. Could the person consciously decide, nonetheless, they need to say something and overcome that and speak? Yeah, it yeah, can happen, right? But that requires a lot of conscious willpower and intent and, right, you have to work on that. First thing. Right? If something is really a habit, it ends up having that same kind of quality that you in this, under these circumstances, react this way. And therefore, for you to change that, you would have to. Well, well, I want to actually do this. Changing the habits and freeing the habits. and us talking about not acting in the habit. You have to do the same thing. You would have to exert that same kind of conscious self mastery over yourself. So, in practice, what we here mean by a habit is not just a mere routine, but it's something that has actually become, have that same quality like a nature. And I want you to think about the nature and the voluntary action kind of set up in opposition to each other. Okay? Now, what would be an example of something that you may have make a routine but has not really become a real habit? Their teeth. Some people brushing their teeth. Some people brushing their teeth. Like, they'll do it. But, like, like it, it, it... Actually, if, I can't if, fall asleep if I had a brush. So okay. then, then maybe not brushing their teeth. <laughs> yeah. But I can go in the morning. And- Some people go days without brushing. Like, if the toothbrush is there, they will pick it up. It's not there. Like, it just... It doesn't... And so, it, I don't, those are not the kind of habits we're talking about. And the reason why I don't want to think of those types of habits is because, because we're, we're talking about things that involve how you live your life, such as studying Torah, doing mitzvahs. Like the habit of taking a of right. So a habit. Right. So so uh, uh, so when we talk about when we talk about a habit becoming becoming nature, that means it has a kind of a force, and this is very important. Okay. So let's say you keep Shabbos out of habit. We're gonna put that in quotes, whatever that means. What would happen if keeping Shabbos became difficult? Then that's not what we're talking about here. Because now think about your nature. Okay, if if something just think like like if if something is in your nature, that's how you react to things, right? And the cost of your nature is very high. You're still predisposed to do it, right? You have to exert a lot of willpower, like. Let's say a person has a temper problem. Let's say they're naturally predisposed to getting, <laughs> flying into a rage and yelling and screaming at people. Right, there are people like that. Okay, so let's say that's for such a person. Even once that person realizes that the cost is really, really high and it's really, really inconvenient, they really shouldn't do that. Right? Does they does that automatically just disappear? Yeah. No, because it's a nature. Right? If you have a habit that has become a second nature and the cost of keeping that habit has gone become very high, it doesn't automatically disappear. There's this other kind of habit, which is like your basic routine just as a matter of convenience, but like the minute it's inconvenient, you don't, you're, not, you're not, there's no there's no actual attachment in terms of you as a person to that behavior. That's not what we're talking about because you can't really be religious like that. There is a point at which like keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, studying Torah have costs, right? And so if we're saying that you'd cultivate that as a, as a habit becoming second nature. It has to really become something on that, that level. I'll give you an example. Let's say a person, um, didn't grow up religious, okay? And so they didn't keep Shabbos. Then they start keeping Shabbos. At some point, the following thing will happen. Usually, not always. And it's not necessarily a conscious thing. At some point, the following thing will happen. They're in a situation where it is extremely, extremely inconvenient to keep Shabbos about a specific thing. It doesn't have to be, I'll give you an example. One time we were at, uh, the men's program was at a Shabbaton, and the electricity kept collapsing right before Shabbos. And so there was no hot water and hot food. What? There they have it this weekend. I wasn't there. This was a few years ago Shabbat time. And so we're trying to (laughs) fix the electricity. Now, like Shabbos starts at a specific time, right? Like the water. And like there was this sense that like we have to fix it by this time, because if we don't fix it by the time, we just won't have electricity over Shabbos. But Hashem, we fixed it with about a minute and 10 seconds to spare. (laughs) At least by the clock everyone was going by. Um, (laughs) But like Where was that tension coming from? Was that coming from our devout spiritual nature and our devotion to God? Or was it just the sense of like it was so ingrained that you don't mess with electricity once the clock goes past the time that Chavez starts that like it would have actually required willpower at that point to violate Chavez. Now, how did that come about? How does that come about? That comes about through habituation. Okay. And that's actually a lot of what raising children religiously is about is actually just that, is habituating them in mitzvah observance so that it's actually harder to not do the mitzvah than to do the mitzvah. It's hard. There's a story. It's a little parable to illustrate this thing. There was somebody who, was, who learned that making brachas before you eat is a very significant thing. And He went on to work on making brachas, and he grew up religious. And he was, you know, really a Jew, but he realized that, like, you know, brachas that you're talking to, are talking to God and about God. And it's, a, it's a, so he went to a rabbi, and the rabbi taught him the meaning of the blessings. What does it mean? What does it mean to bless God? Why does God need our blessings? The significance of referring to God's second like, word to say, "Blessed are you." The meaning of God's different names. What means He's King of the Universe? So, Like really fleshing it out, and he says, "Okay, so now let's work. I want you to like take the food in your hand. I want you to make the blessing." And so he said, I think it goes like this. Baruch. Hashem. <laughs> Malik. <O'ola>. <laughs> and, and the rabbi's like, Drink! And he just mumbles the bracha. Because it's so habituated that you don't put anything in your mouth before mumbling the bracha that he just made a bracha with all this conscious awareness and yet before the hand gets to the mouth, the mouth has to mumble words. Right. Every time I wash my night, <laughs> I make the breath on everything. Right? This is the problem, right? Then, say it or night, everyone washes their hands like, don't, 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 don't. So, there's this notion that it actually, it's hard not to do the right thing because it has become? Uh-huh. A habit. A habit. And by here, we mean habit. Habit that operates on a level like nature. And it's called second nature because you have to condition yourself into it rather than it being innate. But it's not happening in the sense of just a, a passive routine that, when it's no longer convenient, no longer available, just disappears. Okay, that's what he means here. Is it to... no. So, what would it mean that a person has the habit of becoming studious? Then, let's put it this way: a person has the habit. Yeah, he says a person has accustomed himself to, to... to study with great diligence so that the habit has become second nature. It's hard for them not. It's hard for them not to. It's hard for them not to. It's it's a, like it it's it's it, 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 it's hard for them. Now, it wasn't they were always like this, but it's hard for them to just, okay, yeah, whatever, find one that like, no, no, what even? I don't really I don't know what to really. With your child, the one that about, do you feel that it's in nature? No, that's a, nature. Yeah. <laughs> that's a first nature. That's a first nature. That's a Yeah, 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 that's a first nature. That's a first nature. Yeah. Um so, but you can, so, this, so you can make things into a second nature. And so even if a person isn't born the way we described, a person could work on that. right? Okay. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I want you to think about that for a second. Is it a good thing if, if if Torah observance is not natural for you to work on it so that it becomes a second nature? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? In isolation, before we get to what it says in this chapter. So Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. It sounds like a good thing. Why? Because... Second nature, it's not much to word it nicely in a me version of wording, it's not so much like effort to think about it because if it becomes your second nature, you just do it. Mm, Why is that good? But that's good in terms of observance if you look at it in a plain basic way, but also it's not good because then you lose the meaning behind what you're doing, right? So that's going to be this is going to be very important. Developing this kind of second nature about observance is not a bad thing. He's not going to come and say it's bad. We're going to say, how, do you, how does this person nonetheless serve God? But then the goal, the, the solution is not to make sure you have nothing by, by second nature. And like I said before, the, 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 the way in Jewish education we're supposed to raise children, this goes back all the way back to Moshe, is how you're supposed to raise children that doing mitzvahs is because of second nature. Now, then there's a level of then you want as they become into adulthood, you want to educate them into the notion of serving God. How does that work in terms of like last year when you're older and the it's become second nature? Is it really second nature? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so, it'd be, it, it, different people, different people, it's different. Um, you you want to hear a funny story? So uh, this could be taken offensively and it's not meant as offensive, but it, it, isn't. it is a funny story. So a friend of mine who's younger than me was um, in a shul. You know what a shul is? Uh, yeah. So you guys know what a synagogue is, right? Yes. So imagine that you have like a, 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 a show, a synagogue, but instead of being one room, it's a bunch of little rooms that have a bunch of meetings starting like at a bunch of different times. Um, and if they're busy enough, like you can go in at whatever time of day you want. And you know, if it's shachar's time, you have to wait maximum like 10, 15 minutes before the shachar's meeting starts. Um, and then people just hang out there, and it's like, also known as a minion factory. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a nice thing. We have a minion called the Shabbat. Yeah, so, so a lot of places. What? Yeah, I mean, but that so and then, that, so like there, if you have enough Orthodox Jews living in a place, you end up with this place like that. You you need a sizable amount, right? Because you know a minion is ten men. so You need a lot of men coming through. Um, there are places like that where I live, and Shlaim there's places like this. So he was in one of the shetibels, one of these minion factories. Uh, and he's wrapping up his tefillin. Now, tefillin are very, very holy. Just to put it in perspective, tefillin are like almost as holy as the sacred Torah. That's how holy tefillin are. They're a very, very sacred item. Okay? Um, and he's wrapping up his tefillin afterwards um, and he's wrapping his tefillin as most people do when he takes the tefillin and he's wrapping them up and you know, doing something else while he's wrapping the tefillin. And someone comes over to him he's like, how can you do this? all oh, in Hebrew, by the way. How can you do this? How do you wrap up the tefillin like that? And my friend's like, what do you mean how to wrap up? What are you talking about? Don't you know how holy tefillin are? Don't you know about the sanctity and what it says in Kabbalah about the mystical lights and how it elevates your soul? And he's going on and on about all the stuff it says in Hasidus and Kabbalah and and, and, and in the the Talmud about the significance of tefillin and and the spiritual power of tefillin. It's like, how can you just wrap them up like that? And so my friend says, how long have you been putting on tefillin? And this guy says, I've been putting them on for six months. <laughs> yeah. And why do you put them on? He says, don't you know? And he goes on, oh, this thing and that thing and all the mystical and all things. So my friend says to him, I've been putting on tefillin since I was 13 years old. Actually, before. And I put on tefillin because my father inculcated to me that Jews put on tefillin. Then he finished wrapping up his tefillin and walked away. Yeah. Now. <laughs> That's how you guys what? <laughs> um, I have friends who are not like me, by the way. <laughs> um, every, everybody needs friends that are not like them. Um. Now, obviously, the idea is not, there's not, and this is what the whole point of this chapter is about is that, 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 that for something to be just habit and rote is, an, is not the ideal way to do something. But I want you to think about it like this what is better? To have something by habit or not have it by habit. All things being equal. Those are your only two choices. It's not a habit or it is a habit. It's a positive. thing. A a Jewish observance. Shabbos, kosher, Torah study, brachas. Habit or not a habit? Habit Habit is going to be better. Why? It will get done. Mm -hmm. And because you are constantly presenting yourself with the opportunity to to be conscious about it. And that was going to be the second thing. The other thing is that will get done. Well, that's the first thing is it'll get done, which is kind of like just, the, that's a kind of impersonal thing. But then there is a personal thing, which is when something is there, you can relate to it. You can make it meaningful and significant and work on it if it's there. But if it is not there, and it's like that okay, so like, I'll just give you an example. Like, I'm, 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 One of the things that, one of the things that the, you're not supposed to do is pray by rote. And the code of Jewish law dictates that you have to pray um, a certain amount of prayers, saying a certain text. With men, it's three times a day. With women, there's some dispute about exactly what it is. I'm not going to into that. But at the end of the day, it's a weird thing. You're not allowed to pray by rote, and yet halacha mandates specific prayers and specific texts at a specific time. How do those two things drive? And that's exactly what you're saying. It's like, if you have to pray every single day, you have to say those words, at some point... You have to face the fact I've been saying the same words now for 30 years. Like, what do they mean? And if not you, then your kids. If not your kids, then your grandkids. G- At some point... It, meaning when it, becomes habit. It's habit. it does lose... So, lo- so the thing is, when something has it, it doesn't depend on meaning, but it doesn't lose its meaning. How does that, it means, like, how does that support the fact that the habit's better? Surely, like, you know, it's more of an that every time you said it, it's not a habit. Mm-hmm. It has a lot more... I'm not, I'm not behind it. Because and this is this is going to be critical to understanding the chapter. The nature of human beings is that we work from the base up, not from the top down. Those things in our lives which are not habits fade. They become they they, they, they in other words like this. It is true that if, if every time someone did something for me, I really cultivated at that moment a deep sense of gratitude, and then expressed it. That, that would be wonderful, that would be amazing. But no human being operates that way. No human being operates that way. But a human being who has developed the habit of saying thank you, there's something then to work with, okay? In other words, just like we understand that biologically, like, you know, for the first things that function are like digestion, and. And breathing and things like that, and only then you start developing other fact, like even the fact that like infants can recognize people's faces, which is kind of critical to social bonding, kicks in only after a few weeks. Okay, um, like we develop, we develop kind of from the base upwards or from the outside inwards. There's this there's this notion that the way God, if you think of it as other things, like when you when when um, when you're um, building a building, you have to lay the foundation and you build on top of it. So this is one of those areas where if you're thinking about the, the, the ideal of something, you think about it one way. If you're thinking about the reality of a human being living, you have to think about it very differently. Um, if I get up every morning and go to show and put on my toilet, even if I do that out of habit, that means that – like. The obligation to go to show and to fill in are part of my life, whether I'm consciously paying attention to them or not, which means at some point, whether I or my children or my grandchildren will then have to like confront and deal with that in some way. On the other hand, if every single day it's a question, is this meaningful to me or not? The nature of human beings is that anytime something is, anytime something depends on, entirely depends on right now, the value I seen it, how much I put into it, those things end up fading over time. Okay. One of the reasons why some of the rationalist Jewish philosophers give for mitzvahs is basically this, is that not that the mitzvah act is supposed to be meaningful to every person at every time, but if the whole society is doing the mitzvah act, generation to the next, that ensures that over the history of the world, there will always be Jews who at some point connect to the meaning. Okay. And then that goes back to again on the individual level. So this cannot, this cannot and should not be read as dismissing the value of cultivating habits and second nature. What this is saying is that that, 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 that shouldn't be seen as like an ideal, that should be seen as a baseline. Okay. Let's think about it like this: okay? um, anyone here play an instrument? okay um i do not play an instrument but i have a son who plays an instrument so um there there are two things i've noticed about playing an instrument one is i'll call the technical aspect of playing an instrument and the other i will call the human aspect of playing an instrument and i'll explain to you what i mean um can you get i'll use the keyboard because he plays the keyboard can you get your fingers to hit the keys in the right way to produce the music i mean you can work on that right no, but if your fingers are too small? Well, then you can get, get. Then you. The, the, I wasn't referring to the size of your hands. I was referring to about the technical ability. Okay. You have to work on it. Okay. Get a keyboard with smaller keys. I don't know. But yeah, there's something you So you start out, and, and by the way, like even even somebody who's like really good at playing the instrument when they're learning a new piece of music. There's some element of of of, of building that and getting that skill. So that and there's levels to that and layers to that, um, but what it comes down to is very basically can you create a kind of a nature to your fingers or to whatever you use to play the instrument? Okay, A second nature. Okay. And you cannot play music if you have to consciously decide to how to push your finger at a particular point, a particular piece of music. You cannot play the music. It just won't sound right. Even though you have to work on that to get to that point. Yes? Make sense? Okay. If that's all you do, the playing of music, though, is very dry, both to the person playing it and the person listening to it. There's this whole other element of connecting as a human being to the music as a, as a mode of expression, as a mode of experience. Okay. And that affects, by the way, how the music is played in very subtle ways that are hard to articulate for most people. Okay, Now, I think we would all understand, like, even though the real joy and value and depth in playing music is in that second thing, if you just try to do that second thing, like I say, okay, play this piece of music with feeling, but you don't actually have the muscle memory to play the music technically well, it's just not going to work. Okay? Whereas you can get the opposite. You get a person who can play the music technically flawlessly and sometimes their heart is in it and sometimes their heart is not in it. And so that's the kind of model we have to understand. For religious observance, we're not trying to say okay habit is bad second nature is bad we're just trying to say that it is incomplete because if you remove that baseline then what you're left with is is, is mood and whim and inspiration and that's you can't live a life on that is grounded in those things not that those things are bad things not that those things are negative things but they can't they're not the ground it's like you know the chandelier is a very nice piece of thing to have in your house right um but you don't build the house on the chandelier right it doesn't it's not designed to hold up a building. Okay. Now, like most things in life, when you have a complex thing, people tend to err on one side or the other. So people often, by, because of personal experience or temperament, they tend to hyper-focus on the importance of cultivating good habits and second nature. And get very uncomfortable with the the open-endedness and the... the the instability implied in making something personally significant and meaningful and cultivating that. And then you have the opposite where a person might react the other way and try and downplay the habits. What I want you to see is reading this text is that he's taking for granted, um, that this person has these habits and he's not even taking for granted as a bad thing, he's taking for granted as a good thing. And we'll see later on the text that it's clear that's a good thing. And moreover, it's the nature of a person. You can't actually stop yourself from developing habits. If you do something repeatedly, and that thing has some sort of resonance with you. I'll explain to you what I mean. For instance, um, I have a two-year-old. He's very cute by the way. Um, so how does he learn how to make brachos? Through, Through his parents. Through his parents. Specifically, what? Before you feed him, or you okay. let him play? Like okay. feeding. When he's at the restroom when he's playing, like when when. So I have to sit down and I tell them, now make a broken, now make a I mean, that, that's, um, Imitation. Two-year-olds like, are human beings. Human beings are naturally social. They seek to fit into their environment. If they see that those in their environment have a certain practice, they try to copy. Them. Right, And so if the parent... so. So, if they see that the cha- parents do certain things and those things have, they can, not like conscious, but they have kind of a sense that those things have significance in the social dynamics, either at school or at home or whatever it is, then what happens? The kid starts to feel like they should like try and like play act at that. And now, if you like actively encourage them and direct them, then you instill that. But but a lot of that happens. So, for instance, um, Like little kids will like like my two-year-old, he also he'll he'll take the kiddish cup and I'll start making kiddish. Sometimes in the bath, like he'll take like a little cup in the bath and starts making kiddish in the bathroom, which is not the most appropriate thing. But like, it's not like I told him to do that. You understand, right? It's there's this human beings being social pick up that certain things have a significant in the social thing. I'm part of the social thing, and so the instinct to fit in and to belong drives that. Okay. So Guess what? That doesn't disappear when you hit 5 or 10 or 20 or 50. Let's say a person grows up, completely not religious, and they're 50 years old, and they join a religious community, right? The things that are socially significant in the dynamics of that community, so whichever mitzvahs, customs, or idiosyncratic behavior, which are maybe not even customs, but are significant in that religious community, as that person feels like they want to belong to this community, they will start picking those things up not just by conscious but it'll start resonating now so you end up picking up you cannot you cannot live a life without developing these kinds of second nature habits um, which is actually leads to a very interesting halacha people don't know this but Jewish law requires that you live in a community that will that will have the effect of instilling in you good habits a good second nature if you live in a society in a community where everybody is behaves in an immoral manner and that is accepted and even celebrated you as a social being are going to therefore predispose to developing and condition develop what kind of habits immoral habits even if you even if you consciously try not to you will still pick things up because of that need to fit in need to belong and so it, it's it, um, it's not a it's not a having these habits are not a bad thing into themselves and it's also something you can't really totally control you can control, like say, I don't want to live in a society where these are the norms, where these are the expectations, where these are how people live, so I want to live in a different, that you can of control. But once you're there, to various degrees, more or less, you pick up the things. Um, this is why, for instance, if you ever go open up a code of Jewish law and you like, go through what God expects of a person when to be religiously observant, and then you go to an Orthodox community, you will find that the standards that the Orthodox community uses to measure whether someone is, quote, from or religious are not the same as God. What is the standards that the community uses? Do your patterns of behavior fit in with our patterns of behavior? Now, if our patterns of behavior have a loose corollary to the code of Jewish law, so it's, but it's a loose corollary. For instance, according to the code of Jewish law, are you allowed to drive on Shabbos? Mm-hmm. No. According to the code of Jewish law, are you allowed to have a non-Jew do things for you on Shabbos? No. Also no. The, no, how do we even say it know, depends right about driving on Shabbos? I can come up with a bunch of situations where you're allowed to drive on Shabbos, also, but the standard rule but is no. Are you driving the car or are you sitting? Like <clears throat> you can't. Drive it now. <clears throat> it's in it's very very simple. Are you allowed to drive a car on Shabbos? No. no. Are there all sorts of t- interesting exceptions? Yes. Are you allowed to have a non-Jew do things for you on Shabbos? No, no. no. Are there all sorts of interesting exceptions? Mm-hmm. Okay, but, but the, they're both. But now, if you have like a whole bunch of people who don't drive on Shabbos, but they they have a non-Jew come in and hint to them in this kind of like. Way to get all stuff, sort of stuff done. We're like, okay, well, there's, there's a, this is a religious community, right? Yep, group. Now, according according to the code of Jewish law, are they, are they keeping Shabbos properly? No. No. But because the people don't relate to that as a problem, then if someone joins the community, it doesn't like that a problem. And this is kind of the issue. Is like if you grow up religious, then people people who are about to don't often know. If you grow up religious, your sense of what it means to be religious is just to do the stuff that you've been habituated to do, which is why learning actual halacha oh, can sometimes be traumatic, even for religious people. <laughs> Because they find out all sorts of stuff that they thought is a big no-no turns out to be their grandmother's mishigas, <laughs> <laughs> or things they thought is perfectly fine yeah. or absolutely forbidden. Because what you're what you what you have are habits that you develop by being a social creature. Now, we, Judaism says utilize that to, in, to, to in, in, instill in a person a sense of how to live their life in accordance to God's wills as a good as a good base as a good foundation. Um, but it's not the same thing as saying, okay, I am consciously doing everything according to God's will. That, that, that would be a very different thing altogether. Um, so it, it's one of these things that has its pros, it has its cons, but to simply dismiss it because it has its negatives is missing the point. Okay? Um, and that also means, by the way, when you think about like, getting married, raising your children, what kind of community you want to live in, part of what you need to confront, and this is a very difficult thing to confront, is the tension between your personal comfort And the norms and habits your children will pick up on. Okay? And I want to explain to you what I mean by this. It could be that a certain community would actually help instill in my children the the kinds of habits, the kinds of second nature that I think really would be beneficial and be good to have. And at the same time, it could be that I could feel very uncomfortable in such a community. Because we often are familiar with the idea that what we aspire to and what we're comfortable with are not always the same thing, and that's a question that a couple, both in terms of who you marry and where you raise your children, kind of you need to figure out how to balance that. Um, and, and, but it, but it's just and, and I'm your attention it branches off this issue in talking about about second nature. Part of the decision about where you educate your children, what community you live in, what secondary school to, is not what is taught. But, but the way life is lived and because people are social, what that child picks up on as the ways to fit in and those become the nature for that child. Those become things. So for instance, if you live in a community, I'm just using two examples. If you live in a community where the the nuances of how somebody dresses are have a lot of social significance, don't be surprised that the child t- takes that on and has a sense that that's a very significant thing, almost as a kind of a natural Instinct. Okay. On the other hand, if you if you um, if you if you live in a, a, a community where certain things are considered to be, um, even if they're considered to be wrong right, or inappropriate, they're considered to be acceptable. They're not. Cons- they're not looked askance at. Don't be surprised that your the child doesn't have a gut level sense of what's wrong with it. Okay. And again, these are, these are on that level of nature, on that level of, 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 of you know, that, that just conditioning and response. Not, but that's the level that kind of serves as the foundation that we then build a more conscious and intentional version of our lives. And that's an issue that everybody has to figure out how to kind of deal with. And there's not, there's not one simple answer to that. Yes? Yes. Um. Strong. Like I'm saying, like kids of Shulchan, for example. Like I mean, every kid is gonna bring their own thing. But like kids of Shulchan, like sometimes they grow up in like areas that are very far away, and they like homeschool and stuff like that, and they people from all over come to like there. Like I've seen both sides of the about the out the out kid people, people that are very influenced, people don't. But I'm saying like I don't know, like how do you? Like, so, the home is a very strong. The home is a very strong thing, but but so I. One of the biggest criticisms that was ever levied against the Rebbe was shlucha, and specifically because Judaism is pretty clear that you're supposed to live in community because of the nature, because of the nature of persons, they develop the second nature on a communal level. And a home, is as strong as a home is, a home is only one aspect of that. There's layers to that, all of that. Um, And it's something that the Rebbe took kind of personal responsibility that if the parents are devoted to the mission that the Rebbe is sending them on, that the Rebbe is going to do whatever special Rebbe things the Rebbe can do to ensure that. But it's not a normative way to live life. Um, And I know what? There's no such thing as a guarantee. I mean, there's a story story that that goes around, which is true, but I don't know if it ever happened in the sense that it, it contains something really real. The story goes is that somebody was a shleach and his children didn't end up so religious and he complained to the Rebbe. And supposedly, and again, I don't know if this actually ever happened, but it does illustrate a point. He says, I took responsibility for you going out to bring people closer to Judaism. I didn't take responsibility for the newspapers you brought into the home. In other words, th- there's this notion that if you are, if you are if, 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 if the home is, is coming only from that place, okay, but... but I, I think it's very important to realize like that the Rebbe himself even saw that as a special thing. It's an out, not normal thing. Um, someone's asked the uh, previous Rebbe, how come he doesn't send out Shulchan? And, and he says, because I'm not the Lubavitch Rebbe, I can't take that kind of responsibility. <laughs> um, no, but it's, I think it's important. And I know people who wanted to go out on Shulchan and ask their mashpia and things. And they say, absolutely not. Like you're At not in a, a you're place. not in a place like like so said, yeah like you're you you're you you're, you're, i know somebody he, 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 he he's older now but he, he told me he where lives in religious community I asked why he said well when i got married i wanted to go open up a, like a Chabad house in a not religious era in israel and i and i asked my mushroom asked my mentor and he said you've been living in a religious community for a very long time. You show up to Shul for Shachar on Shabbos and that's it. You don't even go to shul Shabbat the weekday mornings and you have a minion right down the block. What do you think is going to happen to your Judaism when you have no... That... It, it, you're just not that person. And, and he said it was hard for me to hear that at that time, but looking back on it, he, he, he saved me and my friends. It's true. And like I know people that, that asked there about going on and never told them. Also, no. Like, I... I don't want to, like, I don't want to, but I, I think it's important to realize, like, that is an exception. That is a unique thing. We don't build things based on that premise. Um, and that's actually why, like, a lot of shulchan, to be very honest, have a very difficult time. Because, like, I, I, know, I have to know Shleach who is in a downtown area. And she says, Look, I get somebody, and they finally get it. And, like, I, in all responsibility, have to tell them, leave. You want to, like, raise a religious family. You want to, like, you can't do this here. Wow. Do you yeah. have to? So I end up like, I can't build, like, I don't. All right. My rat guy. Yeah. Like, 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 like and he says it's hard because I would like to, like, have, like, you know, 15 or 16 people who are, like, you know, but it's just, it's not sustainable. But I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to put their family and their growth Thank at risk. So there is a thing. Now, what I do want to keep is that a building is just not its foundations, though. Having a solid foundation is not a building, it's not a pleasant building. And if all you have is habit and all you have is inculcated norms and things you've absorbed and just kind of are conditioned reaction, right? right. That's a problem also. And that's what he wants to address here, but but not that we uproot all of that. Right, right. oh. Makes sense? Yeah. I have a off topic question, asked you just talking about, since like the pass. Like who describes well, it depends who you <laughs> ask. Um, this part, I don't know. Okay, so I'll tell you very much like this. There's an official system in place that the Rebbe a set of specific organizations, and so officially you have to, like, get approval from these official organizations. There are people who have issues with that and don't like that, and will set themselves up, and they say, well, because I believe in the Rebbe's vision, I'll set up an institution, I'll call myself a and if the official organizations don't recognize me, that's their problem. And um I, And I am I, I, not... I'm going to go further into that. There's obviously ideology and politics, but that's the that's the reality of oh, things. Um, okay. So again, is this should this be read as cultivating habits is bad? No, it should be read as cultivating habits is necessary. Insufficient. Okay, cultivating the second nature insufficient. I just want to. I just want to point out one other example of this. Um, you've heard of the military? <laughs> Any concept of a military at all? Yeah. L- military training is very much about turning things into second nature. Why? They need to act because they, what's his second nature is what happens. And in the military, the focus is on what actually happens, right? And how you feel about it is not really so relevant, okay? Um, And in a sense, when the Jewish people left Egypt, do you know what God called them? The army of God. Legions. 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 You know what legions is? It's a fancy word for army. (laughs) What was the Hebrew? Tzivos, as in like tzavah, as in like tzahal, the tzadik and sounds. The military, huh? and so that does tell us something about the about how God sees how it should work and it should be habituated. Now, is that the is, is, is that the only aspect of model of Judaism? It's not right, but it is a foundational thing. So just that that's another angle on the same theme. Um, okay, so then what should such a person do? How is such a person who is who? Does not is not required to struggle because they have the nature of their godly soul, their animal, so either naturally does not oppose a religious lifestyle or they've habituated themselves to the point that it doesn't oppose a religious lifestyle. How then do they actually serve God? That's what we need to explain. Next paragraph, All right, sorry. all right, so he says, unless he wishes to study more than his wants, that's what we. we Unless meaning what? Unless he wants to study more than is his what is his nature. want. His nature. Okay. Um, this will then explain the statement of the Gemara that one who serves God refers to one who reviews his lessons hundred and one times, one who does not serve him refers to one who repeats his lesson no more than one hundred times. This is because in those days it was customary to review each lesson one hundred times, as indeed is illustrated in the in the Talmud Ibid by the example taken from the market. Okay. We're the example of the market. Let's um, just talk about. Back in Talmudic times, there was a notion that you had to review your lesson 100 times. Why did you have to review your lesson 100 times? Why do you have to memorize it? Because it was there weren't many written copies. There weren't many written copies. So uh, th- th- there's some truth to that. Part of it was that toro, oral Torah was not allowed to be taught publicly from a written text. Because God said no. Yeah, you're not allowed to teach oral Torah publicly from a written text, and you're not allowed to teach written Torah publicly without a text. Really, um, really. Saying, yeah. yes. Um, in fact, you're even not allowed to say written Torah without a written text. Um, there's some discussion about the scope of that. Many people say that if everybody knows it by heart, like the Shema or Asher, things like that, then that's fine. you have all different and that are over. Well, if you ever listen to the Rebbe speaking and the Rebbe quotes verses, he often yeah. misquotes them. People say that's the reason is that the Rebbe often would misquote it. them so that they're not actually running afoul of the issue of quoting verses by heart. Like you up, like if you don't have like okay. a to and yeah. like okay, you remember, it's always good to like. Dominate. Right, but so there is it, but there's so there's a question about the scope of both of these prohibitions. At some point, there was some discussion about changing this. I won't get into the details, but before this was changed, you so that you you. You didn't, now, you didn't have public text. Now, you could still, at the end, like, go back home and write your own personal mm-hmm. notes. That was uh, mo- seemed okay according to most opinions. But if you're not working from a text, you can't reference the text in your learning. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which creates a problem if we're trying to make sure that we properly understand something because the wording can make a difference. So how do we make sure that we know for sure exactly what the wording is, exactly what was said? Not that we remember for the rest of our life. We could always write, go home and write it down. But like when we're, right, we need to have those words where? At the top of your mind. How are they going to be at the top of your mind? Be of your mind? Not because you wrote them down, right? I come to class and I say, what did we discuss last week? And everyone's like, well, in my notes, it says over here. It's like, that's not good enough. It needs to be here. Top of the mind, right? So how's that going to happen? Now, if I have a text in front, head, I can say, everyone, look inside, right? By the way, ideally, which is better, to have to look inside or to... Yeah. So, in other words, the fact that we don't do this actually has decreased to a certain degree the quality of the learning. Um, there was a great rabbi named Rabbi Hershberg, uh, he who was chief rabbi, I believe, of Montreal. Hershberg. Yeah. So one time he was when he he was he he was very diligent in his studies. One time he was in the car, and he had a tome of the Talmud, and he was reviewing it, and so he was. When, when, page like this' they turn the page they turn the next page just like kind of like going over quickly which if anyone's ever studied Talmud, going over quickly like that is quite fast. But he's turning the page and at one point stops like this someone I know this story because I someone who was, knows the person who's in the car saw this happen he stops like for five minutes he's just thinking then he looks down and then he like flips five pages or six pages forward and keeps going. So what apparently had happened was that he was going through it quickly, then something caught his attention. He thought it through. Like, so he like, had some analysis in his mind, finished, and went back to reviewing the text. But he forgot to look inside because he had the text so clear in his mind. And at some point he realized that the pages and where his mind was were. So he flipped the pages to catch up with his mind. So this notion of reviewing, reviewing, reviewing until it's on the tip of your mind. In those days, they had a standard practice which was 100 times. And what that meant was you repeated word for word verbatim what the teacher had said 100 times before you were allowed to think about it, before you were allowed to ask any questions about it. It adds a lot of rigor to your studies, doesn't it? By the way, you know the way they would formally ask, ask questions back then? They would say, the master said, and then quote exactly the part that you had a question about before asking your question make sure you were very clear on what Okay. So the standard was, you studied it for 100. You reviewed it 100 times. Okay, now, does that mean every student when they started out doing that 100 times it was natural to them? But eventually developed that as a habit. And by habit, I don't mean that it was easy, I meant that if you stopped in the middle it would feel like, here, um, I, have this, this, I have this analogy for this. Um, you know that, when you uh after you go to the bathroom you're supposed to wash your hands. Not just hygiene wise, but there's also like a religious thing washing your hands. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know that when you're traveling you don't always have like a sink and the cup and the whole thing. Whatever. So like I always have this thing where like if like I'm in the airport and like I don't have a cup and I like, go to the bathroom, I've got to, like wash my hands, the only sink there is the bathroom sink and so like Whatever, like you like figure out some way the best you can. I always like feel like like my hand just feel like weird afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's like something's off. Why? Because my hands are expecting a certain pattern of behavior, right? And it just not hasn't happened, right? It, so these people, that's what eventually happened. It's like if you stopped at seventy eight, it would just like it would give you the be uncomfortable because like you didn't finish. In the sense is like you need you need to go, you need to get to the end. You need the resolution. So, if you, so therefore, once you got to that point of doing it 100 times, if that's your habit, you're, 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 you're going off of the nature of things. You're not serving God. What about the person who serves it, who does it 101 times? That 101st time, how does that feel? It, it it has that it's kind of the reverse now. Now that feels like it, you're like there's a tension You you like push yourself. It's it's awkward. It's it's out of character. Why? Because again, you're going you're going against the nature. The nature is to do it a hundred times, but not to do it more than a hundred times. Okay. Um, I'll give you. A, this is not a perfect example, but is. Has anyone ever read a book they really liked? Yeah. Okay. Um, some people have a nature they reread books. Does anyone hear this thing where they reread books? Okay. I don't like What? Only oh, it's really good. only it's, it's really good. Okay. Anyone here read books? Re- do you, you reread the book right after you finish? No. What? No. Okay. So those of you who do this one, more. but people who don't reread books, like like I can go back think a few years and reread the book or but like to read it like, like you finish but and I go back you. and read chapter one again. You would be like edgy trying to do that, right? Like a little... Why? Yeah, that it's like it's like like normally if a person's reading right and they like something they get into it right, but you just finish reading and then you go back and start chapter one again. Because you're excited, because it's too familiar. You already know you're excited and you want it. No, I'm asking people that don't normally do it. If you normally do it, then this example wouldn't work for you. I would. I it's would too not. familiar, right? And so like there's this, it, it feels forced. There's an awkward, right? Okay. It's like watching. Oh my God, my students we watch the same video and then it's so. But so so why is that the hundred and first? Time? Why is there such a difference between the hundred and a hundred and the first? Time? So the thing was, just, the simplest explanation here is that was just the standard. It wasn't. It wasn't that we're going to apply any specific, special, mystical significance. I mean, there is, but we're not going to worry about that. The, it's just that once that becomes the thing like to go that 100th first time feels really really awkward, really uncomfortable. Okay. Now, I want to stop because there's, there's at this point something can get very lost. If you do something that is against your nature like that. Yeah. It, it it has an awkwardness it has a discomfort to it do you think that the person who's reviewing his lesson 100 one times is saying okay i learned i did my lesson 100 times but that was just my nature now i'm going to stew it for god and then they just like white knuckle and push themselves to review it 101st time do you think that's what it's referring to here no why not I can give you, like, a very simple argument. I mean, there's, there's a few arguments, but I'm going to give you the simplest argument. What are we talking about doing? What's this person doing 101 times? But what are they actually doing? Reviewing their lessons. Okay. If you, have you ever tried to review something while resenting the fact that you have to review it? Have you ever tried to engage something intellectually, study for a How successful are you doing at that? So you're saying we did it 101. They liked it. Well, I don't, I'm, not, I'm just saying that, that, that notion of like, like you, they did it up to the point of nature and then they just like, just like raw pushing themselves because it's the right thing. But that's not, you'll see later on the text, algebra doesn't say that that's what's happening. Right? Um, and it, but I want you, there are things that you can actually do. Like you can like get to a point where like you're done washing dishes and just force yourself to wash more dishes. You can get to a point yourself where you're done saying words and you just keep saying more words. You, you ran, like, here, like, all cannot do that with study and with prayer. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. You cannot do that. Something which requires psychological engagement, if all you're doing is just pushing yourself to do it, you won't work. There has to be something else involved. Okay? Um So there's a there's a Hasidic practice um, in Chabad to say the entire book of Psalms, the entire Sefer Tehillim, every Shabbos before the new month. It's called Shabbos Mivarech. I do not like doing this. It's not not my, like, you know, all the things that in Judaism. Like if I had to drop one that I encounter on a regular basis, that's definitely in the contending list. And there are other things that, like you know, once in a while, like really really hard to do. But this is like every single month. Okay, fine. But you know what? I can, I do it. And there's a way in which I can, I don't want to do it. Just, I got to do it. Force myself to do it. Do it and just get it done. You can't, but, but what am I, what am I, what am I forcing to do? I'm forcing my mouth to do what? To make sounds. That's not the same thing as reviewing your studies, is it? Reviewing your studies requires a kind of Attentiveness and engagement. There's something else that would be more involved in that. Okay? Prayer is even more so. I once asked uh, my Meshbiya, my mentor, about like, what do you do when you're like, you're trying to pray, like really trying to pray, you're working on it. And like, you're, you get to a point and you're like, you're done. Like, so he says, you have to know whether you're actually done or it's just hard. Because if you're actually done, so you're done. We used to say, finish saying the rest of the words. Sometimes yeah, there's more words left to say, but you're emotionally like done. And he says, but sometimes, you know, you can recuperate and get back and like touch yourself and, and keep going. You have to just have to know that. There's the same way, in other words, that, that you push yourself to do things physically is not the same way you can push yourself to do something intellectually and emotionally. Does that make sense? Okay. And so I think it's very telling here that he uses the example, the Talmud's example of study. One could speak about, one could say I say that's important because it's talking about the, you know, how Torah study is such a great thing. But another thing is, and, and you're going to see this as we go through the text. The algebra's notion of serving God is not simply, okay, this thing is hard for me. I push myself to do it anyway. Ergo, I serve God. There's a way in which you make push yourself to do it that is going to make all the difference. And that way is modeled off of the way the person reviews their study 101 times. Okay. Now, I want to preempt a little bit. If you want, let's say you're, you're a student and the student doesn't want to study for a test and they need to study for that. What do you need to do to get them to study for the test? And I don't mean a little child when it's just kind of rote memorization of things. I mean like actual. Make it enjoyable, bribe them. Bribing them. What? They, them? They, You have to motivate them. So it starts at thing. You have to motivate them. The student doesn't want to study for the test, but they need, they need to study for the test. You need to motivate them, right? What well, you should do it. try to make them understand why they have to do it. Yeah. So the issue is like this. If you bribe them, if you threaten them, what ends up happening is, at best, they try to figure out what they need to do to game the test, and they don't, and you kind of, even if you win, you failed. Now, I'm not talking about little children, okay? I'm Little children is a whole different name. I'm talking about adult learning, okay? It just doesn't work. Like, I I, I, I teach teenagers, 18, 19, 20 year olds, Gamara, and, like, Unless they see the value in what they're doing, no amount of tricks and gimmicks. Now, tricks and gimmicks can help on the margins, but like they have to see the value in it. And that's going to be the key here. What is pushing this person to do it 101 times? The, he, there's some notion of seeing the value in it. What the algorithm understands is serving God has to come down to, and we touched this earlier, that in the person's mind, there's an awareness of divinity, awareness of godliness which provides the motivation to overcome their natural instincts and inhibitions. That they recognize this is significant and important in a very personal subjective way, and that's what pushes them past the habit and the comfort zone. If you're simply making yourself do something, if you're simply making yourself do something, it's very good that the thing got done because the thing needed to get done, but that's not gonna really, Satisfy this. And you can see that because in, in, in study, and in, which is the example uses that can never work. That never you, you, you have to be engaged. And your mind and your heart engage when they see value in something, not when they feel coerced into something. Yeah? I don't know if this doesn't make sense, but in my head, does. what if the value in something is pushing you, but you're still doing it in a detached way? So that's what I wanted to get to actually is once you understand this, you can understand that there's a qualitative element in service of God, not just a quantitative element. So there's a person and they reviewed their studies 101 times. They're, they're one who serves God, right? But now all the people who are on that, all the people who did 101 times are the same? No. One person recognized its value, and that recognition of that value itself was so driving and so motivating. That the fact that it wasn't natural didn't even didn't even didn't even notice it wasn't natural. It just completely overcame that, almost almost in a kind of with a passion, if you will. And there's the other person required some element of like being principled, and some people actually had to throw in some like just old-fashioned willpower into it, right? So you can once you understand this idea, you can speak about not just quantitatively, did they 101 times, two times, 10 times, but qualitatively. How much of this getting past what was natural, learning more than is is their habit and their nature, how much of that is the real battle he said about the godly awareness over the natural instinct? And how much of that is other supporting things helping you get over that hump? And so some people, you have two people, they're both people who serve God and one is serving God better not because they're necessarily doing more, but the, what is making them do more is more connected to an awareness of God and less relying on these other kinds of supports. So I'd have two people, okay? One person is studying, actually people, one person is studying because that's their nature. One person is studying, it's not their nature, but they know it's important, and because they know it's important, they, 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 they remind themselves that it's important and they push themselves to do it. And another person recognizes how important it is that they become enthusiastic and passionate about the study. Of the three, who's the one who's serving God on the highest level? The last one. Even though the last one isn't struggling, because it's not the struggling per se, it's the, the one thing overcoming the other. The first one isn't serving God at all, just all their nature. The second one is serving God, but but, but the, it, it's of limited value because that service of God, there, there's only so much God in it. So like so much the value of godliness in the Torah studies was actually driving them. And the third person that has become such a dominant part of their life that it is completely like flooded over the fact that it isn't natural for them. And this is the thing that to see going forward is that when he's going to start talking about the, the value of, of serving God, okay? Um, and he's going to talk about two levels of serving God. It's all going to come down to like the aware, how much of the awareness of God and the godliness of this mitzvah or the ungodliness of the sin is the actual motivating thing and how much of it is nature, and if you, if, those, if you add in another thing, like just say willpower, determination to kind of help tilt it in the godly favor, it's still service of God, but it's not as high quality as where, where, it's, where, where that awareness, that, that sensitivity is itself sufficient to motivate you. So you don't have to be like pushing yourself. It's arguably the opposite. The person who's really serving God doesn't feel like they're pushing themselves at every moment. Discuss- they are pushing themselves, but it's a different kind of pushing yourself. Do we ever discuss awareness, like, comes awareness? We're going from? to. We're so going much.
1: to. But you said before that, like,
0: these or like, it is like a struggle. Like, Hashem made it so that it is a struggle. Like, to yeah, but, but but what is the what is the struggle? The struggle, if you, you said previously, is battle his evil disposition, order to vanquish it by means of divine light that irradiates the divine soul to put that in simple English, that my awareness of God vanishes my my limitations that come from my nature. Now, the more I succeed in that battle, the less it feels like I'm fighting myself. The fact that it feels like you're fighting yourself and have to push yourself to do it means you're at the beginning edges of that struggle. Like Like We're not sanctifying the internal conflict for the sake of internal conflict—that's not—that's not what's happening. What we're sanctifying is you serving God. You serving God means you cultivating your own awareness of God, which motivates you to do the things. And that comes about when you have to go past your nature. Yes. But but, if that, but you're really succeeding in that struggle. You're really doing that struggle well when the nature becomes less and less of something you feel like you have to resist. It's it's really being overcome. And so when a person's awareness of God provides them with the passion and the enthusiasm to do terms beyond what their nature, beyond what their habit would incline them to do, without them even realizing of how difficult that actually really should be for them, then they're really serving God in the highest level. But then doesn't that just become nature? No, it doesn't become nature because, and this we're gonna talk about, that awareness is something they have to constantly be cultivating and maintaining. If they didn't, then they wouldn't be so abandoned, they, it they it would was. become a tzaddik. Oh, but the difficulty the difficulty is not the overcoming of the nature. The difficulty is in cultivating and maintaining that kind of awareness. So probably of time until they get Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so yeah. I mean it depends on the person. Some people are so deep and profound that even a few minutes of thought should be roused so radically transform their experience things. That I could know. also be the case. But in other words, it, it the 101 time is not oh, it's 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 it, it, it's hard. It's that it's intentional. So do you think that a lot, I don't know if it's just based on my experiences, but we basically downplay and we take everyone that's feeling, and it's it's easy, but it's not easy, and say they're in the first category of being cold, when really they're here. They could be here, 100%. You could have someone who really works on cultivating an appreciation of things, and 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 it's it's not easy for them to do that. It's not easy for them to do that. They have to put in effort to maintain that consciousness and that awareness of God and significance. And they get good at yeah, it. Right, but they're connected with everything and we downplay it and we're not going to struggle. Well, you right, because we're, that's again, okay. We're not sanctifying struggle. We're sanctifying service. Those are two different things. I feel like that's so awesome. Yes, and then I have to go to... Okay, the next what's spot. better? Someone who has no awareness and all the habits or someone who has full awareness and no habits? I would say having no awareness and all the habits. Because if you have all the habits, the awareness can be introduced. If you have... If you have all the awareness and none of the habits, that awareness will not last. It's the nature of a person. And it's the nature of a family, it's the nature of a society. Um, and then you see that very clearly. Like when God gives it to us, like the choice, like do the mission, just do the mission. We can build off of that. And it's very, very true. And anyone who's honest with himself will realize that. The trick is if you become if if if, if you start to think that all the habits is all you ever will need, you start to corrupt it. And again, use that analogy. If someone, start, if someone starts to tell you all building needs is a foundation, then you start saying like, who would want to live there? If a child grows up and they feel it's all, it's only about habits. Well, all they have is habits. And they know it's about more than that. That's not about They think it's all, all they have is habits. and there's nothing more than the habits, then they start to feel like it's just it's, it's empty. That's a different thing.